Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Virtual IBD Clinic, Disease Management and Surgery, is jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. This activity is supported by educational grants from AbbV Incorporated, Celgene Corporation, a Bristol-Myers Squibb company, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, I'm Dr. David Hudisman. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine and the Co-Director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at NYU Langone Health in New York City. In this CME activity, I will be discussing the clinical case of a patient with inflammatory bowel disease, as well as the principles and guidelines for disease management and indications for surgery. So our patient's name is Jack, and Jack is a 23-year-old college student with Crohn's disease. He had initially presented with persistent non-bloody diarrhea, some abdominal cramps, weight loss, and pain with defecation. At presentation, his physical exam was remarkable for some oral aphthous ulcers, diffuse abdominal tenderness. On perianal exam, they noticed some skin tags, and there was rectal tenderness with a visible anal ulcer. Initial colonoscopy revealed the perianal skin tags noticed on exam, as well as multiple ulcers in the anus, rectum, sigmoid, and descending colon. Biopsies from the left colon showed patchy, severe, chronic active colitis, and there were rare, poorly formed, non-necrotizing granulomas. Based on the results of Jack's initial colonoscopy and his clinical presentation, he was diagnosed with moderate to severe Crohn's disease, and he was initially treated with prednisone 40 milligrams a day and azathioprine 150 milligrams a day. About a couple months after his initial diagnosis, Jack was seen in the emergency department for severe perianal pain and purulent straining from his rectum. An MRI demonstrated a perianal abscess. He was discharged from the emergency department on oral antibiotics and with instructions to meet with a surgeon in about a week. Unfortunately, his pain persisted and increased, so he presented back for further evaluation and treatment. Jack has developed symptoms consistent with perianal complications of Crohn's disease. He's advised that he will need an exam under anesthesia by the surgeon in order to further evaluate his symptoms. An anal rectal exam under anesthesia revealed a large perianal abscess and fistula. The abscess was surgically drained, and a seton was placed in the fistula tract. So this is our challenge question for our patient, Jack. Which of the following treatment options is appropriate for Jack at this time? A, continue treatment with prednisone 40 milligrams a day and azathioprine 150 milligrams a day. B, increase prednisone to 60 milligrams a day. C, continue azathioprine and add infliximab. Or D, remove the seton after one week. The correct answer here is answer C, which is continue azathioprine and add infliximab. The reason that is the correct answer is when we're managing our patients with complicated Crohn's disease and perianal fistulizing Crohn's disease, our best evidence is with infliximab or anti-TNF that will improve fistula drainage as well as fistula healing. And that should be added to the treatment with azathioprine, as we'll discuss in a little bit, that combination therapy is recommended for these more complicated Crohn's patients. So to summarize our case, 
Jack has severe Crohn's disease, complicated with a perianal abscess and fistula requiring surgical drainage and seton placement. Jack is made aware of the detrimental effects of long-term steroids, especially within abscess, the need for avoidance of this medication, again, as I mentioned, long-term due to other side effects, including bone loss, elevated blood sugar, and blood pressure. The prednisone is going to be appropriately tapered as quickly as possible over time. Azathioprine continues at 150 milligrams a day, and infliximab was started at a standard dosing of 5 milligram per kilogram at 0, 2, and 6 weeks. In follow-up of this case, by the second infliximab dose, Jack is feeling a lot better. He has less abdominal pain, his bowel movements are more formed, and now only twice a day, and his appetite is improving, he's eating more, and he's starting to gain weight. And I think one more part just to summarize that's key with this case is evaluating a patient with perianal Crohn's disease prior to initiation of treatment. Ideally, you'd like to do a good MRI, which was done here, to evaluate the fistula, the abscess, and the different possible fistula tracts, and then an exam under anesthesia with any intervention such as drainage or CTOM placement. And that is key for every patient with perianal Crohn's prior to starting therapy. So for the first part of this talk, I'm going to speak about long-term management of severe Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And I'd like to start with first talking a little bit about the natural history of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and understanding that for most patients with both these diseases, and especially most patients with Crohn's disease, that this is a progressive disease. Meaning if you look at older natural history studies of patients with Crohn's, the vast majority of people, about 80%, will initially present with an inflammatory phenotype. What that means is you'll have your typical symptoms of diarrhea, usually non-bloody, abdominal pain, possibly some weight loss. However, these patients are followed out over 20, 25 years, and they're not started on appropriate therapy. Now, over 80% of them will develop either fistulas or strictures. Furthermore, if you look at the natural history of surgery in Crohn's disease, within a year of diagnosis, about 10 to 15% of patients with Crohn's disease will require surgery. And if you follow these patients out for 20, 25 years, over two-thirds of these patients will now require surgery. And what we think is happening is although symptoms could fluctuate, as many of your patients that you see in the office, some will at some points in time, they'll have more active symptoms. At other points in time, they might have more mild symptoms. But if we're not healing inside, over time, this amount of bowel damage or irreversible bowel damage is slowly increased which will lead to strictures, fistula, and again, eventually surgery. And there was one other comment is that when I speak to patients with Crohn's disease, I think it's key to explain to them that symptoms do not correlate with how they're feeling inside. So it's not uncommon for somebody to come into the office feeling relatively well, and then you do a colonoscopy and some type of imaging study, and they have moderate to severe Crohn's disease. And the flip side could be true as well, where we know they have Crohn's disease, their symptoms are severe, and we look inside, and everything actually looks pretty good, and it's healed inside, and maybe their symptoms are driven by something else, such as stress, infection. Now, I think it's also important here to talk about ulcerative colitis, and I think people don't always realize that ulcerative colitis is also a progressive disease. About 30% of patients with ulcerative colitis will require colectomy. There's an increased risk of dysplasia, and this is in patients with histologic inflammation, meaning that even if endoscopically it looks normal, but on biopsies, there's inflammation. If they have this histologic inflammation, they've had symptom onset for over eight years, that's when that dysplasia risk starts going up. 
and we usually focused on patients with histologic evidence of disease more than just the rectum, so more than just proctitis. And also, patients that have had disease for many, many years, this chronic inflammation, especially in their left colon, could lead to scarring, or otherwise known as this lead pipe colon. And these patients could have urgency, looser stools, increased frequency, and that's just from chronic damage as well. So not only Crohn's disease, it's a progressive disease. So as I mentioned, over time, with our diseases, with both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, that the disease may progress. So when we're treating our patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, our goals are not only to treat the symptoms. Now, the symptoms are extremely important. We want to improve their symptoms. We want to improve their quality of their life. However, symptoms are not enough. And our goal should be to heal them inside or to improve what's happening on the inside. Now, a lot of our older studies are retrospective, meaning looking back, showed benefit. But more recently, we have a prospective study, randomized study, looking at this concept of treat-to-target strategy. And this was called the COM trial. And what they did here was they took 244 patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease, and they randomized them to two treatment arms. And essentially, one treatment arm was based on symptoms, meaning that at time point zero, if the symptoms were active, they were started on adalimumab, induction, and then every other week. And then they would reassess symptoms every three months, and based on clinical judgment, if their symptoms weren't well-controlled, they'll increase the adalimumab from every other week to once a week. And then three months later, if they were still not well-controlled, they would add on an immune modulator like azathioprine. In the treat-to-target strategy, every three months of that time point, they not only looked at clinical symptoms, but they looked at objective markers of inflammation, so CRP, fecal calprotectin, and so forth. So, for example, if a patient in this study was started on adalimumab induction and then every other week maintenance, at around three months, even if they were feeling well, if their CRP was still elevated, if their calprotectin was high, they were going to move to that once weekly. So it was the standard practice and treat-to-target arm. And you can see here in this slide that the primary endpoint of mucosal healing at one year was significantly higher in the tight control group at close to 46% versus the clinical management group, which was at 30%. And when you look at some key secondary endpoints, really looking at deep remission, meaning mucosal healing and feeling better, improvement in their biomarkers, complete endoscopic healing, overall, the tight control group did better. There was some follow-up studies. This was a two-year follow-up looking at Crohn's disease-related hospitalizations, Crohn's disease-related surgeries, and then the composite outcome. And you can see here at two years, we start seeing patients that were in the treat-to-target group have less hospitalization. The surgical arm was not statistically significant, and that's more likely due to the short-term follow-up. We even have some longer-term follow-up in abstract form, not fully published yet, from this study, suggesting that patients that use this tight control, this treat-to-target, that achieved healing two years later, they were less likely to develop fistulas, less likely to develop strictures, less likely to be hospitalized, come to the ER. So this is our first study, prospective study, randomized study, looking at the treat-to-target approach and really supports that. So really, this is our new algorithm here. When we're treating somebody with moderate to severe Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, or really in any case, we want to align our goals from the beginning. So we have our target. And the target might vary based on the patient, based on the severity of their disease, and so forth, but you're gonna have your initial target, and if our target, as we were just discussing in certain patients, are to heal the mucosa, we start treatment, 
And then over those first six months, we're constantly evaluating, right? Meaning we're seeing them in the office. We're talking to them about their symptoms. We're looking at biomarkers, whether it's CRP, whether it's fecal calprotectin. We're repeating a colonoscopy four months later, six months later, depending on the patient. And if we're satisfied, the patients are feeling better and we hit our target, then we continue with our strategy. If we're not satisfied and we're not hitting our target, then we reevaluate and make some necessary changes. And that sort of brings us nicely into the next part of the talk is sort of non-response to our anti-TNF therapy. So first, just to touch on some of our recent guidelines and recommendations from our national organizations. So if you look at treatment options for severe Crohn's disease, the American College of Gastroenterology, or ACG, put out their recommendations, and they recommended starting our biologic therapy, whether it's an anti-TNF agent, whether it's an anti-integrin agent, or whether it's an IL-1223, with or without combination with an immune modulator. We know trials from the sonic data showing the benefit of combination therapy, but they, depending on the situation, they recommended this with or without combination therapy. And the immune modulators we're speaking about are thiopurine, such as azathioprine or six-month captopurine, as well as methotrexate. Looking at the treatment options for moderate severe ulcerative colitis, the AGA recommended our anti-TNF agents, specifically infliximab, alimumab, or golimumab, our anti-integrin therapy with vitalizumab, our IL-1223 inhibitor, ustekinumab, and our Janus kinase inhibitor, JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib, however, with the recent FDA changes only after failure of an anti-TNF agent. And as monotherapy, we could use thiopurine, such as azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine, and methotrexate is not recommended as monotherapy for ulcerative colitis. So if we have a patient that's failing therapy, this is where therapeutic drug monitoring comes into place. And this is the AGA guideline on therapeutic drug monitoring. First, to talk about thiopurine, so that's azathioprine or 6-MP. In adult patients on IBD that start on the thiopurine, prior to starting, really we should be doing routine TPMT testing to see how they're metabolizing and whether it's safe to start azathioprine or 6-MP and whether we need to adjust the dosage and how often we should be monitoring our patients. And then for adult patients that are already on the thiopurine, again, either azathioprine or 6-MP, if their IBD is active or if they're having adverse effects, then the AGA is recommended reactive testing. So checking thiopurine metabolites, looking at the 6-TG, seeing if the 6-MMP is high and they're having hepatotoxicity. Is the 6-TG high and they're having bone marrow suppression or it's a little bit low and we need to push that dose? The AGA, however, does not recommend routine thiopurine monitoring in patients that are with quiescent or that are doing well with their IBD. Now, in anti-TNF agents and drug monitoring, this is a pretty controversial topic. And what the AGA recommends that patients with active IBD treated with an anti-TNF agent that they're recommended reactive therapeutic drug monitoring. However, they did not recommend proactive drug monitoring. And when we're talking about biologic TDM or therapeutic drug monitoring, specifically anti-TNF, there's reactive TDM and proactive TDM. Just to define these two conditions, reactive therapeutic drug monitoring occurs when symptoms worsen, and the goal is to improve clinical care, and it's shown to improve clinical care and to be cost-effective. Proactive TDM is when you're checking a drug level when patients are feeling well. So this could be during induction or shortly after induction. This could be during maintenance when they're feeling well. And again, retrospective data 
has shown the benefits of proactive TDM on clinical outcomes in patients. However, our prospective data has not shown those outcomes, and that's why it's not recommended by our societies across the board. However, certain scenarios where I think if you're somebody that doesn't do proactive drug monitoring where it could be helpful is if you're thinking about withdrawing therapy or backing off on an immune modulator such as 6MP, azathioprine, or methotrexate. Checking a drug level at that time, I think, is very important. In patients, if you've had a drug holiday, whether it's insurance reason, whether it's another reason, and you want to restart therapy, I think that's where we want to definitely proactively monitor. But across the board, it's not recommended by our societies. So this just summarizes what I just said. Reactive TDM has been accepted as important. Benefits of proactive monitoring are less established. Again, there's a lot of variation. And as we get more data, more will be published and the guidelines will be updated. So coming back to the case, Jack had perianal Crohn's and Crohn's colitis, and he was on infliximab 5 milligrams per kilogram every eight weeks and azathioprine 50 milligrams a day, and he was doing well. About a year prior to presentation now, the C-time fell out, and he had no further problems with his fistula. However, during his current visit, he complains of abdominal bloating, right lower quadrant pain that occurs a few hours after eating, and especially after he eats certain foods like popcorn or nuts. Jack says that this feels different than any of his Crohn's symptoms, his Crohn's abdominal pain that he had a few years back when he was sick with his fistula and active colitis. He had a CT enterography, and there was a six-centimeter stricture at the ilium, and there was also dilation of the small bowel proximal or above the stricture. Colonoscopy was then done, confirmed the stricture in the ilium, and the scope could not be passed fully into the ilium due to this stricture. Based on these findings, Jack undergoes an ileocolonic resection with a primary ileocolonic anastomosis. So this is our second challenge question for Jack. Which of the following is an approach to managing the patient who is at high risk for post-operative recurrence of Crohn's disease? Is it A, prescribe no medication and repeat a colonoscopy 24 months post-operatively? B, prescribe anti-TNF therapy and repeat a colonoscopy 6 to 12 months post-operatively? C, prescribe mesalamine and repeat a colonoscopy 12 months post-operatively? Or D, prescribe 6-mercaptopurine and repeat a colonoscopy 18 months post-operatively? The answer is B to prescribe anti-TNF therapy and repeat a colonoscopy six to 12 months postoperatively. And we're gonna go into a little more detail in the next few slides of why that is. But in general, certain patients with Crohn's are at increased risk for recurrence. So in those patients, we wanna start therapies postoperatively relatively soon after surgery. But the key point, whether you, somebody gets started on therapy or not, it's extremely important to do that colonoscopy six to 12 months after surgery. So let's talk a little bit about surgery for inflammatory bowel disease. So these are overall indications for operative management of inflammatory bowel disease. So acute complications where a patient urgently needs to go to surgery is toxic megacolon, right? A key point with toxic megacolon, this is a clinical diagnosis. If you're seeing the colon dilate on imaging, you might already be too late. So you need to have a high suspicion for toxic megacolon for an acute hemorrhage, an acute bowel obstruction that's not resolving, and for a perforation. 
And then a lot of the patients that are going to the operating room are more for chronic disease complications, so not these extremely urgent surgeries. So this is medically refractory disease, fail multiple biologics or immune suppressants, recurrent intra-abdominal abscesses, chronic small or large bowel stricturing or penetrating disease with recurrent symptoms, neoplasia, and then also in certain situations, growth retardation in children due to the severity of disease. So let's talk about the natural history of Crohn's recurrence. So if you take all patients that have had surgery for Crohn's, once they're reconnected, so the key is once the fecal stream is reintroduced, there's been some studies, small studies that showed as early as one week after resection and reconnection that there could be histologic recurrence. If you look at all comers of patients, follow them out a year without putting them on appropriate therapy, 70 to 90% of patients will have endoscopic recurrence of disease after surgery. However, looking at clinical recurrence, the clinical recurrence in the short term is pretty low. Only about 30% of patients with Crohn's will have symptoms three years after surgery, and 60% may have symptoms 10 years after surgery. So this goes back to that challenge question of Jack, where waiting for symptoms is too late. We're already seeing early histologic, early endoscopic recurrence. And if we wait a couple of years for symptoms, we're already going to be behind the eight ball. So how do we predictors of clinical recurrence? The other thing I had mentioned earlier was that doing a colonoscopy six to 12 months after surgery is extremely important. And the reason that's important is it could help frame and predict what's going to happen with this patient down the road. And this is called, when you do the colonoscopy, we like to assess using something called the Rutgert score. And what you're looking at is that the anastomosis and the neoterminal ileum, or the small bowel just proximal to the anastomosis. And we grade this from a score of I0 to I4. I0 is perfect. I1 is less than five aphthous ulcers. I2 is more than five aphthous ulcers. Three is diffuse inflammation, and I4 is more significant inflammation, deep ulceration, stricturing, and narrowing. And if you have an I0 or I1, that shows less than a 10% clinical recurrence rate at 10 years, or that's predictive of that. So when we do the colonoscopy, if somebody has a normal-looking NEO-TI or less than five aphthous ulcers, that's somebody that we're happy with whatever therapy that they're on. I2, if you start seeing more than five aphthous ulcers, that's, that has about a prediction of about a 20% clinical recurrence rate at five years. And if you already see I3 or I4, so significant inflammation in that NEO-TI, you have you know, 50 to 100% clinical recurrence rates in the short term. And I4 patients have high rates of reoperation. The other part that we talk about with Jack's case is, so we know we need to do a colonoscopy after surgery to evaluate for recurrence, and then we have our root score to help predict recurrence rates. But the question is, do we need to start people on therapy immediately after surgery or within four weeks after surgery? And that's when we risk stratify our patients. So somebody with low risk is somebody that has a short stricture that's had Crohn's for a long period of time. Somebody that's at a higher risk of recurrence is somebody that has penetrating disease, fistulizing disease, somebody that's a smoker, or if this is their second surgery. And then moderate is something that's in between, so ongoing inflammatory disease, longer strictures, and so forth. So somebody that's at high recurrence, moderate recurrence, these are patients that you're going to consider and most likely should put on some type of therapy, whether it's an anti-TNF, which I use in my practice, or a thiopurine within four weeks after surgery and after reconnection if they were diverted. So one study to discuss the benefit of using anti-TNF, specifically in 
infliximab in this post-operative setting is the PREVENT study. This is a multi-center trial of 297 patients with Crohn's disease. They had undergone ileoconic colonic resection within 45 days, and they were randomized to infliximab or placebo. And you could see here that although they didn't hit their primary endpoint of clinical recurrence, that there was significantly lower endoscopic recurrence, only 30% versus 60% in the placebo arm. And the reason they didn't hit that clinical recurrence rate goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that clinical recurrence rates are pretty low early on postoperatively. To touch on surgery for ulcerative colitis, for most patients, we're offering a total abdominal colectomy with a J-pouch or ileal anal pouch anastomosis. And this most commonly is done over three steps. What they do in the first step is you remove your entire colon, however you leave the rectum behind. And the reason we leave the rectum behind initially is most of these patients that are having surgery done have a lot of inflammation, have been recently on steroids or other types of immunosuppressive therapy. So we want to minimize complication from going into the pelvis. The second stage, the rectum is removed. They make the J pouch out of the small bowel, and then they connect everything. However, they still keep a proximal diverting ostomy to allow all those anastomoses to heal and mature. And then the third surgery is a quicker surgery where you just reconnect. Patients do very well with this surgery. And with surgery in general for IBD, it shouldn't be looked at as the last possible option. Patients that are very sick, they have their colon out, they have a J pouch, they're gonna do very well. If you look at complication rates, there's some early complication rates. However, these are easily, for the most part, sort of taken care of in the short term. When we're talking about long-term complications, there is decreased fecundity, meaning the chance of getting fecundity is different from fertility, with fecundity being the chance of somebody getting pregnant per cycle. However, what we learned is a lot of the reason we think this is happening is that during the surgery, there could be some scarring around the fallopian tubes. So if there is scarring around those tubes, patients with pouches have shown to do very well with IVF. Pouchitis or inflammation of the pouch can occur and could occur up to 50% of patients. However, the vast majority are easily treated with antibiotics. And then looking at, you know, in expert hands, pouch failure is extremely low. And these pouch failure rates in certain studies when you're following these patients out for 20, 25 years range around from 5 to 7%. This is just one study I always like to show and discuss with my patients, looking at clinical outcomes, what they could expect. Pouch success, as you see here, 20 years later, 92%. And when you're talking to patients about what they could expect after a J pouch, their new normal is going to be about, you know, I tell them about six bowel movements a day, could be six to eight, could be four to six. About 10 to 20% of patients might have one or two of those bowel movements at night. However, their quality of life and their work is significantly improved from preoperatively. So just to summarize, treatment of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis has evolved. We want to select the right patients that we're worried about progression. And if these patients were worried about progression of their disease earlier, more aggressive therapy is key. And I don't even love to use the term aggressive. I think earlier, more appropriate therapy is key. So starting on our biologics earlier on in the right patient. And our goal, although treating the symptoms, improving the quality of life is extremely important. That alone is not enough where we have to target. We have to target the gut, the target the mucosa, and we have to heal the mucosa. When we're starting therapy in our more complicated patients, somebody with extensive small bowel involvement, penetrating disease, deep ulcers in the colon or the small bowel, we want to start with the biologic therapy. A lot of times we're combining that with an immunomodulator. 
practically speaking, more than half of our patients with Crohn's will still require an intestinal resection, and that's usually because by the time they present or by, by the time we start therapy, the disease has already progressed and have irreversible damage to the bowel. So surgery should not always be looked at, especially in Crohn's disease, as a last line of therapy. Sometimes should be used earlier on. But realize that surgery is not a cure. The disease can recur after surgery and keep close monitoring with colonoscopy and using anti-TNF early on postoperatively in certain patients is critically important. So I want to thank you for your time and thank you for participating in this CME activity. Please do not forget to take the post-test and complete the evaluation to receive CME credit. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. This activity is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Celgene Corporation, a Bristol-Myers Squibb company, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.